But in any case, we are now going to be in the Word of God. So let's do that. Acts chapter 9. Go ahead and find your way there. Acts chapter 9. And stand with me. I'll read the text. And then let's see if we got a sermon after all this time. Acts chapter 9, starting with verse 1. This is the reading of God's holy and profound and powerful word. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man named, of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And, he, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called, called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray. Father, as I come before you right now, as we come before you as a congregation, we, we ask that you would first, that you'd bless the work that's being done across the globe that's being done in your name uh, and that this church is getting to take part in. I pray as we come to this text today that we would understand the significance of this conversion story. Lord, I know that we've heard so many times thus far about your gospel for sinners. I pray, Father, we can understand in a more tangible way your gospel for villains. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So trying to understand how to introduce a message like this one can always be tricky. And what do I mean by that? Every message that we come to in the book of Acts and any scripture as we go forward has a context and there's ways to introduce it. But I always like to introduce sort of a problem that we might face. And in this case, the problem that we might face is actually the gospel. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you go to Romans, we've already read this as we, we stood up during the music, but let's look at it again. Romans chapter 5 if you look at Romans 5, one thing I will tell you about not having videos, I don't have time to drink my water. Hold on. Romans chapter 5. That's the whole reason, right? Um, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. So we already looked at this a little bit, but let's look at it again. 
Notice this section, wonderful news, and yet it's a problem. I'll explain. It says, for a while we were still weak. <clears throat> At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So just think about the sentence. For a while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The, the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. If I could put before you, let me rephrase that. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is wonderful news for us. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. It tells us that you can come to church as you are. You can come to church any way you want. Amen. You're not going to stay that way, right? You're, you're either going to hate it and leave or you're going to stay and be repentant and reformed and God's going to do all this work in you. But, but the, 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 the good, great, awesome news is the state that we start in. It's not like something where you say, oh, I got to get, get in shape before I go to the gym or I got to clean my house before the cleaner comes. Like, it's, not, it's nothing like that, okay? This is one of those things where what it's saying is while we were enemies. And so when we think about the gospel for a second, I want you to think about how we might view this. It sounds great but we want to put limits on it. We've built a whole franchise of sentimental stories about golden-hearted sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. In the story, the, they're, they're, yes, they're impoverished, but they're always seemingly educated and wise. They're always nice. They're never super actually annoying. But what he's talking about is the gospel, not just in the way we look at it, but in a way that sort of offends us. What do I mean by that? Now, let me give you an example. Imagine showing up to the jailhouse to watch the woman who brutally murdered your brother finally be put to death. All right, so this is a true story. This is where Richard Thornton, brother of Jerry Dean Thornton, found himself as he witnessed her execution after many years in prison. When asked if she had any last words before the lethal injection was administered, here's part of her statement. She said, yes, sir, I would like to say to all of you, the Thornton family and Jerry Dean's family, that I am so sorry. I hope God will give you peace with this. Everybody has been so good to me. I love all of you very much. I'm going to be face to face with Jesus now. Warden Baggett, thank all of you so much. You've been good to me. I love all of you very much. I will see you all when you get there. I will wait for you. Imagine hearing this. She found Christ in prison. And her life changed immensely. And Richard Thornton got saved after this testimony and will one day greet his brother's murderer as a sister in Christ. Now, that's terrible, but beautiful. And we're like, okay, I can see the gospel in that. But it's still uncomfortable, right? Because we, we, we've talked about the sinner part, but this is like, that's someone who murdered a brother. Like, this, okay, that's pretty bad. Murder is bad, right? Well, let's do a different one. Now, I don't know the, the total story about this, but maybe you've heard of uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, <laughs> right? Bad guy. They did a whole Netflix documentary about him. And it ends with him being murdered in prison by another inmate, which is true. But what we don't hear about is that Jeffrey Dahmer apparently gave his life to Christ at some point in prison. And the, the pastor that was there may, avouches that this is a significant thing. And I don't know, who knows, right? But here's the key. Can you imagine getting to heaven and meeting brother Dahmer at the gates? For real. I mean, like that's the challenge. And I want you to think about this for a second because no other religion faces the dilemma that I'm talking about right now, the dilemma of what I'm exposing to you about the gospel that says while we're still sinning. Because when he says while we were enemies, while we're still sinning, we put limits on that, don't we? We're like, well, while we're sinning in a reasonable way. <laughs> well, we're kind of sinning because here's the thing. Every other religion is merit-based. At the very least, people on death row and in prison can show you where the line at least is. But not with the gospel. That's the challenge. That's not the line in the gospel. The Christianity is the only religion where the hero comes to save the villain. And there's no line. That's the crazy part. That's the story that we get to. And you say to yourself, well, Matt, okay, I kind of hear it. But I want you to understand that when I present this properly, I don't want you to sanitize this. Go back to Jonah, Old Testament, Jonah chapter three. Jonah chapter three. Look, you have no time to waste. This is it. We're in it. Jonah chapter three. You don't get to get warmed up a little bit first. You're just in it. Jonah. Thrace. All right. So here's the thing. Everyone knows the story, hopefully you do, about Jonah who gets swallowed by a big fish, 
right? And so if you remember the story of Jonah is that he's a prophet of God and God says, go to Nineveh. Nineveh, Nineveh, city of sin. Go to Nineveh, the city of sin. Go to the Assyrians in Nineveh and preach the gospel. And Jonah goes the opposite way and flees to Tarshish. And when he's there on a boat, there's a storm and all this stuff happens and they throw him overboard and a big fish swallows him up. And for three days and three nights, he's in the belly of a fish. Jesus refers to this. This isn't just like some metaphor, but Jesus refers to him actually. In three, and then he's vomited out onto the ground and he travels into Nineveh the, and preaches the gospel, the good news rather, to the uh, Assyrians. And then they repent. Now, we have to understand for a minute who the Assyrians are. The Assyrians were the people that were persecuting and murdering Jews. They were, they were the worst. They were the people coming in. They were the invading party. They had done atrocities, and they were grotesquely pagan. And so we see that God, from a macro scale, was getting the Assyrians to use them as judgment against Israel. The next time, later, you're going to see prophets go, the Assyrians don't repent. God was doing something. But from Jonah's perspective, when he heard that God wanted to send him to the Assyrians, he fled. And we have to say, why? Well, we're told in the, in the book of Jonah what's going on. Now, notice this and don't miss it because it's a lesson we are not to misunderstand. In chapter 3, verse 10, it says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. In other words, Jonah goes to Nineveh, and I want to understand his methodology. He went through, and we all think, like, right now, I'm passionately coming before you. My heart rate's elevated a little bit, right? Because I'm, I don't believe Jonah was doing that. I believe he went through the city of Nineveh and did the bare minimum. He's like, repent, repent. God's coming. He's going to destroy you all. Just repent. And everyone's like, really? And they just were like, whoa, we need to repent. You know, dust and sackcloth on their heads. And they're like, wow. And they listened to Jonah. And Jonah's like, oh. But then notice what it says in chapter four, verse one. He says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Well, what, what displeased him? God relented the disaster he said he'd do with him. It displeased him, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah fled to Tarshish because he knew God was gracious. He fled to Tarshish because he knew something of what we read in Romans 5, that while we're still sinners, while we're still sinning, while we're still enemies of God. Let me make no mistake. The person who wrote the words in Romans definitely knows there's no limits to those words. And that's his conversion story that we're going to hear about. As we get to the this, this story, we have to understand for a minute that nobody would watch the movie that I'm describing for you, that God comes to save the villain. In every case, when we watch the movie, we sanitize it and make the villain somehow overcome by something they couldn't help, or, or they're really actually good at heart, but something bad was like affecting them, or you know, they really wanted to go the other way, they, they couldn't help themselves. In the new Ninja Turtle movie, if you will, uh, Bebop and Rocksteady, I grew up playing with as the bad guys, and they kind of are good guys in the movie because they really didn't want to follow what Baxter was telling them to do, or whatever the fly guy was telling them to do. All right, like, okay, I can understand why you might say Bebop and Rocksteady in that sense, and I don't get mad at me for using the analogy. It's just so good. Uh, you can see, you can reasonably relate with Bebop and Rocksteady, right? That's what my point is what we see with the story of the Ninevites, what we see, what we're going to see with the story of Paul, who was called Saul before his conversion, uh, what we're going to see about him is that he was not seeking the Lord. There's an escalation in our passage. This conversion story is going to be mentioned to us three times in the book of Acts. That's a lot of times. It is the central conversion story in the Bible. It is mentioned another time in Galatians. That's four times this conversion story is told to us in Scripture. And it's, good, it's a, for good reason, because the person who is converted in this story wrote 13 books of the 27 New Testament books. And so we owe a lot of, uh, of thanks to understanding where this man came from. But the conversion story is told to us again and again, posing one question over and over again as we read it at every single time, and that is this, how big is your grace? How big is your grace? Well, let's look at our passage and understand where we're coming from. So here we are, uh, Acts chapter 9. Notice that this is, a, this is really the, the, the transition of where we'd come from is kind of moving on. 
So up to this point, remember the gospel has become a thing where the church has been born in Acts chapter two and the the beginning of Acts, the the outline of the book of Acts in Acts chapter one, verse eight tells us that the gospel is gonna go forth from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth, okay? And so now the the apostles just stayed and hung out in Jerusalem. So it was this guy named Stephen who uh, preaches this word to the, the, the people of Israel and he's rejected and stoned to death. And after that, the gospel, everyone flees and, and then the gospel spreads abroad. And then we're told a little bit about how it spreads through another guy named Philip. And we see how he goes to an Ethiopian eunuch. And we see how this guy named Simon the Magi and all these people we looked at. And now we return to essentially Stephen, who's died. And we see what happened from one of the people there that was at the execution named Saul. And so in chapter nine, verse one, it says this, but Saul still breathing threats. Now, this is wonderful. I want to begin here, but Saul's still breathing threats. So the previous verses, but Philip found himself at Azotus. So it's talking about Philip. And then we're told, but Saul's still breathing threats. What Luke does here is, is like, you know, when you read those books now and they have multiple stories and it's a theme, it's a way people write now. And sometimes I hate it. Sometimes I love it. But if you're reading a storyline and there's a cool character and he does something and it stops. And then the next chapter is a different character. And you're like, I want to keep going with that one guy, right? And then it tells you a new story, but at the end, you kind of see the tapestry of what was going on in the book. That's kind of what Luke's doing here. He's going along and interspersing uh, the work of this guy, Philip and Stephen. Then we see Paul, and then we see Paul interchange with Peter for a little bit, and then Paul takes over for the rest. And that's the storyline of how the gospel goes forth. And so this is really the story about how we end up getting the gospel, but that's later. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest's and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus. So that if he found any belonging in the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, just understand for a minute where this is coming from. If you go back to chapter eight, the previous chapter, look at verse one for a minute. So Stephen, this guy we'll talk about a little bit here, dies and chapter eight, verse one reminds us, and Saul approved of his execution. This detail is important. Luke does not just put details incidentally. He doesn't say, oh, and so did Joey Bag of Donuts on the side selling hot dogs. He, lo- he approved of it too. Like, it's, why mention Saul? Well, because he's relevant to the story. And what he wants us to see, Luke wants us to see, is that Stephen's execution has something to do with Paul's conversion. It's not just that Paul's going to be converted because something miraculous happens to him, but we're going to see that God had been working on him through the things he'd seen and that Paul's uh, experience had something to do with Stephen's death. And his, this is important. And remember, Luke is a companion of Paul. And so when Paul writes to the Colossians, he talks about Luke and stuff. So Luke and Paul are buddies. And so he's writing about his buddy's conversion here in the book of Acts. But regardless, he says, and Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This isn't just committed them to prison to throw them in prison. In many cases, this meant the murder of those same people. This was a man that went house to house and tried to find out who was a believer in the way, and he would haul you off. This was like, you know, the Nazi German guy looking for the Jews. This is what he was doing. That's who Paul was in this way. And so we're told in our chapter, we're reminded of that guy. Hey, remember that guy murdering everybody, persecuting the church, the head henchman, the arch villain of the church? That guy was still breathing threats and murder. This word literally breathing out threats means he was snorting them out of his nostrils. So the, the description that we're given by Luke is that, is that Paul or Saul here is a wild animal snorting lightning, right? He's just a bad guy. He's the bad guy. He's still snorting threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And so he goes to the high priest, which is in Jerusalem, and he basically gets official letters to the synagogues he was going to at Damascus. So he's like, if I can find any people that are Jews, any single one of them, I can get them and bring them back to Jerusalem where now we can deal with them there. Essentially, the initial offense that Paul had uh, was something he wanted to go and make sure that the persecution started in Jerusalem. He didn't let people flee from it. He needed to find you and bring you back. It's a pretty big deal. And now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, before you kind of understand what's going on, I want you to understand this is happening here, is that God is going to approach him. Jesus Christ approaches him on the road to Damascus. A light shines from heaven in the middle of the day, right? And, And as it's shown around him, this light shines around him, falling to the ground, he falls down to the ground, 
And he hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now notice the personal pronoun here. And he said, well, who are you, Lord? Now there's some question when he says, Lord, what does he mean? Does he mean Lord in a worshipful sense or is it more like, sir? I don't know. But I think it's probably a little bit of a combo of both. I don't think he's like, sir, and just like the most neutral sense of the word. Obviously, whoever's speaking to him is a pretty big deal and Paul responds to it. But I don't think he's totally necessarily a believer in this very moment. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, there's a couple things here because I, I, what I love about this first part, when he says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, what Jesus does in claiming to, to be the one persecuted, this is a crazy thing. First of all, that means he's alive. Second of all, that means his church is his body. In fact, Paul himself, who tells us that we are the body of Christ, guess where he would have first thought this through? Guess where this doctrine would have started to develop? Right in this moment. When Jesus calls the church his body, that to persecute the church is to persecute himself, Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. I mean, you can start to see some development of doctrine here as well of how significant this is, where Jesus says, you're persecuting me. God's, Christ so identifies with the church in a way that's never before seen it. To persecute it is to persecute him. The God who's outside of space and time is now so associated with his church that it is his body. And so that personal pronoun is pretty significant. And then also, if you're, Jesus, if you're, if you're uh, Saul, the idea here is that he's been fighting against God himself. The person he thought was you know, a liar and the worst, he's like fighting on the wrong side of things. He says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And the idea was this hearing the voice, but seeing no one, they saw light. Seeing no one means that somehow Paul saw something beyond just light. And they heard the voice, meaning they heard sound, but they didn't necessarily understand it. And so for them, it was just this cacophony of craziness. But for, Paul, for Saul here, there was something else. There's God in the midst of this. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. There's, there's some reasons for this. Here's a guy who thought he saw for certain the way to go, and God made him blind. And so they, and had to be, he, they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days and, and night, and for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank for three days. This is a, a pretty significant fast here. Now stop and think what happened here. So Paul is proud. He's going to Jerusalem. Now, again, the eunuch, we're told prior to this, when Philip ministers the eunuch, remember the eunuch was searching the scriptures. He went to Jerusalem and he couldn't enter the temple, right? He's a, a Gentile eunuch. He couldn't enter the temple. And so he, but he was a God-fearer. Later, we're gonna hear about Cornelius, who's a God-fearer, and we're gonna see them come to Christ. And we're like, well, that's cool. And so when that says uh, people from all shapes and sizes could come that want to come. That's not Paul's story. Paul doesn't wanna come. Paul's whole mission was to hurt, to maim, to kill, to murder, to persecute. And that's how he gets saved. And the guy that got saved in this way is the guy who writes to us about grace in Romans and all those places. When he talks about grace and we want to add somehow our part in it, I don't know who you think wrote those words, but he certainly didn't have any part in his salvation. His part in salvation was murder and sin. Do you see that? that and, and there's an escalation. That's kind of what I'm trying to say from the eunuch to Paul. His, mur his, like, his intentions were all and totally bad until he meets the Lord. And so I want you to understand this for a minute and listen to Paul's own words here. Go to 1 Timothy. <clears throat> Chapter 1, verse 12. Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, he says, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he's judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. When he says I acted ignorantly in unbelief, well, so too does everyone. <laughs> So too does everyone. What he's trying to say is like the way he had acted in the past and he found mercy, like this whole picture is like he was dead in his trespasses and sins. Christ took it. He acted ignorantly. That's not who he is now. That's what he's trying to say. And, and which leads to his next statement, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me, 
as the foremost. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Guys, when you read these words from the Apostle Paul, if you're like any normal Christian, it almost just seems like hyperbole. That's Paul talking. He's like, I'm the chief of sinners, and he wanted to show me as the most. It almost seems like humble bragging, like I'm the worst. And you're like, you're not really, right? When you hear that, you're like, Paul's not the worst. We're, I'm the worst. Paul's not doing selfies. Paul's not watching. Like, you're like, Paul's not like, you know, doing the stuff that we do. Like, that's what we kind of think about. Paul's the guy, right? He's awesome. We forget where he came from. He's not speaking hyperbolically. He's not speaking in metaphor. When he says, I'm the chief of sinners, he genuinely actually believes it. And it's not because he's now some pietist navel-gazing, like looking at himself being, I'm the chief of sinners. Because I, what, what, um, what I mean by that is like Augustine, has this famous uh, section in his book, uh, Confessions, where he talks about, he says, the worst thing he's ever done in his entire life was taking uh, like lemons or whatever from his neighbor's tree or peaches or apples or something. It was apples, let's just say apples. I forget what the fruit was. And so pears, whatever, thank you. So he goes and he says, the worst thing he ever did was taking pears from his neighbor's tree. And I remember reading this, I was on a plane at the time, I remember reading this, I like put the book down, I'm like, this guy, I can't relate to Augustine at all. I'm like, fine. I just read a little bit further. He goes, the reason it was so wicked was, he goes, I didn't even like pears. I just did it for the joy of doing evil. And I'm like, all right, but still, that's still not that bad. I stole pears, the worst thing you could ever do in your life. I'm like, I just, like, come on, man. Like, you're like, you're, you're like working for that, it seems like. Paul's not working for it. Like, he was legitimately an opponent of the gospel of the church. He was literally an opponent. When he says, I'm the chief of sinners, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, let me rephrase that in a way that we're not used to, which I think is exactly what he means. He says, the, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save villains. Villains. Why the example? Why, why, why Paul? Why would God make this the example? Why would he use Paul for the example? Let me say this. Maybe it's because we weren't paying attention very well prior to this. What do I mean by that? If you go back to Genesis chapter nine, just, just humor me. Let's just flip there briefly. We'll go really fast. I might not turn to all of them, but let me just turn to a couple. Genesis nine. Why would God, you know, use the example of Saul so dramatically? And I would argue to get our attention because we haven't paid attention, and they certainly didn't pay attention, and Saul hadn't paid attention. To what? Noah, remember he's the only person on planet Earth and his family that God saved after flooding the Earth? It's like, Noah's a great guy. God says to Noah, right when the, he gets, the, gets off the ark, be fruitful, multiply. God says to his, Noah and his sons with him, verse 8, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Well, that's great. He establishes his covenant with them. I'll never flood the earth, right? This is a sign of my covenant. I'm giving you a rainbow in the clouds. That's exciting. I'll remember my covenant. I'll never make a flood again. This is a sign of the covenant I've established between me and all the flesh of the earth. He makes us in Noah. And then look at verse 18. Sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. And what's the first thing we read about? Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. This isn't an incidental detail. I just want to miss this. What Moses writes about when he writes about Noah here is that the first thing Noah does when he gets off the ark is gets hammered. Sinfully, it is a sin. Then lays naked, hammered. Like he's like so hammered, he's naked. Like at his house. He's like, ah, he's just laying there naked, passed out. That's the first thing thing that the survivor of the flood of the earth does when he gets off the ark. Not like, oh, he built an altar. Amen. Okay, that's cool. I worship you, God. You're like, you're with a good start. That's a good start. You're doing great. Don't mess up like the whole rest of the world had before. He just built an ark for 120 years. Guess what he wasn't doing that time? Getting drunk and stuff. But now he gets off the ark and he's like, woo, and just gets drunk and lays out. We're supposed to see him flawed, but we don't, do we? We sanitize Noah. Even now, as I say this, people are like, Matt, you're exaggerating. That's how we're presented it. And you say to yourself, well, Matt, that's something. We're not going to turn but Genesis 12. What happens to Abraham? The first thing God says to Abraham is, go into this land, I'll be with you. And so Abraham goes in, and then he lies to the people to tell them that his wife was his sister. Then he does it again. <coughs> and then his son does it again to the same guy. 
The very first thing we're told, this isn't like years later after being really faithful for a long time, this one little thing that isn't really a big deal. I just have to tell it to you. No, it's the first thing. What about Moses who wrote all these things? Exodus, Exodus chapter two. Moses, God's chosen one to deliver them, to bring them out of the Exodus. What is the first thing we read about? Exodus chapter two, verse 11. Look at verse 10 rather. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The storyline of his birth has just ended. Verse 11 is the first verses of Noah's life, not his birth, but his actual life. It says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, looked on their burdens, saw an Egyptian being a Hebrew and one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. He murdered him and murders the guy and then hides him. And then later someone says, you murder and he runs out to the wilderness. Now, why do I point this out to you? It's not just that he does it. Just don't miss this. It's that it's the first thing we're told he does. The very first thing is to murder someone. What about David? It's not the first thing for him. But when you go to 2 Samuel and we look at that passage in detail, what do we find? David is hanging out on his rooftop when he's supposed to be with the kings in battle. He sees a woman bathing on the roof because that's what they did back then. He's like, I want that lady. His guard's like, that's Bathsheba. He, she's Uriah's husband who's fighting for you. And he's like, bring her to me. And he, she, he can't help himself. And then he basically knows her, right? Gets her pregnant. And he goes, oh no, I got to fix this. So then he says, he has Uriah, calls him forth from the battle, has him come to his house. He's like, hey, Welcome home from the battle. I just want to give you a break. Why don't you go home to your wife, hang out with your wife for a couple days or for a day, and then I'll send you back out. And he, so David, in my, his mind, is like, well, Uriah's going to come home. He's going to know his own wife. And then now when the baby's born, Uriah might think it's actually his baby, not realize it was actually King David's baby. Woo, sneaky, sneaky. Didn't work because Uriah didn't go back to his house. He slept at the door of David's place. And he's like, why are you sitting here? He goes, how can I... How can I go home and enjoy my wife when the ark of God is out and we're out fighting for the battle for our, our, our families and everyone? How can, I, how can I go home to my wife when our, our soldiers are in the field fighting for battle? Well, David, David was home and knew his wife when that was happening. Woo. So David's like, okay, fine, go back to battle. He writes to Joab, he says, hey, go towards the wall and then retreat really quickly. So basically Uriah gets killed. So that's what happens. And this is as Bathsheba's mourning, he goes and comforts her and makes her his wife. And then it says, and the thing displeased the Lord. Ah, uh, you think? That's not just adultery. That's not just lies. That's not just conspiracy and cover-up. Then it's actual murder and conspiracy to murder, an actual murder, and then marrying the person who you murdered their husband. And because you're king from this position, she's going with it because what's she going to do otherwise? Now, obviously the son from that union God used, but I want you to understand this. This was the man after God's own heart. And so the Bible doesn't blush at this, but I guess my point to you is grace is meant to be big. It's meant to be really, really big. And that's the grace of God that we see in the Bible. But we, the, the fact that David is called the man after God's own heart, that guy. And so you might say to yourself, I've done some bad things. We're like, well, I mean, I haven't, the line, I haven't gone as far as David is. I mean, David's trying to show you the lines further than you imagine. Can you stop here? But we're uncomfortable with this. Grace is supposed to be big and we make it small. Do you want to know why we make grace so small? Because we make our sin so small. We make what we do so small, we sanitize it. <coughs> We've sanitized all the heroes I just mentioned. Noah, he's awesome. Getting drunk. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> you know, Moses, we sanitize it. Moses is awesome. He doesn't blow it like that. Abraham, Matt, come on, you're exaggerating about the lies. And then with David, okay, that's pretty bad, but he didn't mean it. And so we move on. It was just a moment of weakness. Look, look at how commentators speak about these things, about David and about these people. He's the best. We should all be like David. In fact, later, God says to other kings, hey, you didn't do like my son David did. And I'm like, David's the standard now? Yep, he is. Grace is supposed to be big, but we make it small. How do we make it small? We sanitize it. But here's the problem. God's basically putting it in our face. He takes Paul while Paul's persecuting the church and converts him then. All of a sudden, you can't make grace small at all. The guy that writes to us about grace can't make grace small at all. 
So let me ask you a question, Christian, as we think about what's happening in Paul's conversion, because we're supposed to ask it to us over and over again, is this, is your picture of grace, is your grace big enough for villains? That's the question. Because Paul's conversion demands that we ask it. Is it big enough for villains? Now, why does that matter? Why does it matter if it's big enough for villains? What if, what if mine isn't big enough? Who cares? Well, because that's the only grace that's big enough for you. Let's keep going. It says, verse 10, now there's a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Well, first of all, let's ask ourselves, by the time that Paul gets to this place on the road to Damascus, there's already believers in Damascus, obviously, and they already know stuff. So the gospel's spreading very rapidly. And so there's a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. He has no relation with the previous Ananias who has died already for lying and all that. So there's a different Ananias. So if you're going to name your kid Ananias, there's a good one and a bad one. So it's okay. All right. He says, so there's a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And this is a, a basically an east-west street in Damascus. There's very, very, very similar to current day, actually. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So we're given an insight now that God had given a vision to to Saul. So Saul's here. Saul gets a vision that someone's going to come lay hands on him and he's going to get his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, uh, are you sure you're right? Right, Lord, I've, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And you want me to go and just go up to him and be like, yo, I'm one of the people you're looking for. Here I am, but the Lord said to him, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This verse 15 is really a summary of what's going to happen going forward. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, it's interesting when he says this, because really what's going to happen is that Saul, Paul is going to take over for Stephen. He's the next Stephen. And it's interesting to me because he came into Damascus to persecute and to murder, and all of a sudden now he's blind and has to be led by the hand, totally dependent in Damascus, and he's sitting there blind and fasting. I mean, reeling from knowing he was on the wrong side of things, reeling as he goes through it. And all of a sudden, Ananias is told, go there, and he's like, uh, I'm not sure what to do about this. Now, I want you to understand that what we're presented with is a realistic picture of what we're presented with every time someone comes to faith in Christ. Sometimes we say, and this happens, as soon as someone comes to faith in Christ, we're always a little uncomfortable with that person at first because we're like, is it real? And even more so when that person was a, a persecutor, a murderer. When I mention, I mean, and this is the problem, and sometimes it's not real. Sometimes you're not sure about it. This is one of the biggest problems of celebrity culture, right? This is one of the biggest problems. Now, let me say this. I, I don't want to speak about uh, Kanye West's faith. But I will say this, when, when the first reports came out and he made that album and he had repented, the, the sense, the, the fact that I was first cynical was shameful and I had to repent of that. That was wrong. That was wrong. I had too small a view of grace. Now, maybe I was right and my cynicism was right. That's sad. But let's be sad. I'd rather be surprised on the sad side. Does that make sense? And that in this case, Ananias is told to go and, and that he's going to be used and that this guy is going to be used in a powerful way. And so this is a nice thing because God doesn't have to tell this Ananias. He can just say, go, because I said so. But he's like, no, 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 this is going to work out. I want you to go forward. And so he does. Verse 17, so Ananias departs and he enters the house and laying his hands on him, he says, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Brother Saul, that's the first words that Paul hears from a Christian that he came to persecute. God humbles him, says, you're persecuting me. Humbles him, shows him you were really blind. I'll show you what blindness looks like. Makes him blind. And he's sitting there, he can't see. He's just sitting there like totally helpless and a hand comes on his shoulder, and the first words he hears from a Christian he had come to hunt down was brother. Brother Saul. Think about the theology that Paul has telling us about the body of Christ, the brotherhood of the gospel, how we're supposed to treat. I mean, look at what he went through. Again, none of it's hyperbole. None of it's just happy, clappy, pie-in-the-sky stuff. Paul knows what the, the radical 
momentary transition. It wasn't like gradually grew into brotherhood. After time of you know, three weeks of hanging out without messing up, you can now be my brother. It wasn't that. It was day one, off the gates, brother Saul. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And it could have been like he actually just had crusty, this crusty stuff. Or I mean, who knows? Maybe it was like fishing, who knows? But something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Some people say this might be why Paul had trouble with his sight later. That's one of the things we don't know, but that's an argument. <clears throat> then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Wow, this is amazing. So Ananias comes forward. In fact, well, let me just say this. He's one of the unsung heroes of the Bible. Had not Ananias come forward to receive Paul to do this, God used this person to receive him into the brotherhood of the church, we wouldn't have Paul. We wouldn't have 13 books in the New Testament. This is a big deal. There's a call, I believe, in this, an example, I believe, in this, that we need people like Ananias in the church. Is for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and of those who called upon his name? And he has, has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? Everyone's saying the same thing. We're all thinking like, isn't this the guy? Isn't he going to get us? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. Remember, he was the one going to kill the Jews. Now he's the one receiving it on the receiving end. Going from persecutor to persecuted is a pretty big sign of this conversion. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. It's a pretty uh, humiliating escape. But notice this. So it took this guy, you know, Ananias, to bring him forward. People still doubted and had trouble. And then he goes back to Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem's where he had originally started with his persecution claims. So understand that the Christians that he's going back to, many of those families, he probably persecuted some of those same families he's going to see. There's, he's going to go back to the, the area where he literally actually persecuted your brother, your sister, your friend, your mother, your father. Like that's where he's going to, right? So he goes back and he goes back to Jerusalem and he attempts to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. And this is so important, right? We do this. This is presented to us. But Barnabas, Barnabas means son of encouragement. What a name. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he'd seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he'd preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Who, why did Barnabas do this? Guess what? Barnabas didn't get a vision, we're told, from God. Barnabas did this because that's who he was. Barnabas did this because he understood the gospel. That's the thing. And so Barnabas is like, I'm going to embrace this guy. That's the courage of the gospel. The courage of the gospel is not only going out and telling unbelievers that you love Jesus, even though they're going to get you. The courage of the gospel is also allowing people and receiving people and embracing people who are really, really bad that put their faith in Jesus Christ and all of a sudden calling them brother, that are inventing them, bringing them in and standing next to them because you could look bad, because it could make you uncomfortable. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And so Barnabas takes them in. And brought, brings them to everybody. And so, so then Paul, we're told, went in and out among them at Jerusalem. It worked, right? Preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke a dispute against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, which is where he was from. He, in other words, this guy's a firebrand. Now we're told at some point in Galatians, he spends three years in Arabia and learning. And we'll get to that another time when that came about. But that we're given a summary statement about the whole experience in verse 31. And then it'll change subjects for next week. It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Remember, we started off with it being persecuted by the main persecutor himself, Saul. Saul gets converted. He's being persecuted now, but the church, we're told, has peace. And it's being built up. And it says, and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Why would it multiply? Well, multiplied because, it had, because of its view of grace. What do I mean by that? Ask yourself a question. What did Ananias and Barnabas have to believe about themselves to call their enemy their brother? Go to 2 Corinthians 5. What do you have to believe to do that in this church? Because that's a supernatural work, guys. That is a supernatural work. 2 Corinthians 5, notice what Paul himself says. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. 2 Corinthians 5, 16. 
Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old's passed away. Behold, the new has come. <coughs> Why does he say this? Because everything changed. But you doubt it. The day I got saved, I remember I was sitting next to my wife in a church, and we, she wasn't my wife yet. I was trying to get with her. And so her brother was there, her older brother, and another guy who wanted to date her, by the way. Nice job, Rebecca. Uh, and so she brings me to church. So, so here I am, unbeliever guy. And so she, she was into me, though, too, but she's like, I'm not gonna, I can't go out with you. You're not a Christian. And so I'm like, I'll, I'll try this church thing. I've been, so I'm sitting there in, the, in the, the seat, 22 years old, something like that. And uh, I hear the gospel and I get saved. And there's, I mean, there's, I put my faith in Christ and there's tears in my eyes. Her brother and that guy weren't like, amen. They're like, oh, congratulations. But they're also like, really? Really? Come on now. Really? And I'm like, so excited. They're like, we'll see. Now, God allowed me, I got to do her brother's wedding, and the other guy became, he's watching this sermon probably right now. So it's pretty neat. Uh, how's it going, man? Uh, <laughs> but being the person on the receiving end of that, where like people might doubt you, like I get what Paul's saying, but he's, we have to believe people are new creations. Well, you have to, well, how can you do that? Because the only way you can do that is that because you understand that Christ reconciled us to him and we've been given a ministry of reconciliation. In other words, that God didn't give to us the same justice we deserve, but instead we get mercy. And so we're ambassadors of that mercy. In fact, James tells us, let's go to James chapter two. James two, real quickly. So here's the thing. <coughs> James chapter two, verse eight. James says this way, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Now listen to what he says. He goes, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, has also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So he says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let me put this another way. Which scale do you use when you look at people in this church? For real. Because if your scale is small enough to condemn them in some way who put their faith in Jesus Christ, that scale also will condemn you. The only scale big enough to save you is big enough to save villains. That's what James is saying. He's like, the scale that you use is big enough to, that if it's going to save you, and you're like, Matt, how does that even make sense? How could that even possibly make sense? Well, if you go over and just, and, and, and you say, I don't get that. I get that, that you said it, but it just sounds again like pious stuff. Like, oh, I'm just as bad as a villain. Go to Luke 13. I just want you to understand, this is mainstream stuff we hear all the time, but I'm not using the word sin. I want to use the word villain. I want you to see enemies. Jesus is with the disciples at one point in the Gospel of Luke. It says this, there's some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. In other words, this is a, a, the, the, the common news of the day. They told Jesus, they said, hey, do you hear this? How Pilate took some of these people and they, he made them and, and, and killed them during the sacrifices? That was like the hot news, how you know, Pilate murdered these people. And Jesus' response wasn't like, whoa, that's crazy. <coughs> he says, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Whoa, Jesus, that's a heavy question. That's not what they're even getting at. They're just like, hey, did you hear the news about these guys that got killed in Pilate's thing? And they tell Jesus and he doesn't say to them, oh, they deserved it. God was just giving them what they deserved. His point was, do you think that they suffered because they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. And then Jesus says, how about those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think they were worse, worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Jesus is saying the mystery and the weird news isn't that those people died in that tower or those people died at that sacrifice. The weird part of all of it is that you weren't in it. The weird part about it is that you ought to have been there. When someone says, you know, hey, why me? He's trying to say like every tragedy you see, it's a miracle that you're, not, that you're still here and not in it. In other words, when Jonathan Edwards preaches that sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God, he's getting a lot of it from this when he says that we walk on the thinnest line between judgment. 
That it's the thinnest line that if you're not a Christian right now, every moment is a mercy of God that you are not now in hell. That's what he's saying. That's what Jesus is saying, is that you are surprised that they're there. He said, you're surprised that you should be there. That's Jesus saying it. How can that be? These guys are fishermen. Like people following Jesus, there's a, there's a terrorist and other people with them, but still there's some, they're fishermen. And they're following with them. How can this be? How can I tell you? How can I, how can I speak about in the same conversation? How can I speak about Jeffrey Dahmer and you or your grandma or someone else? Like, that, that, that should offend you a little bit. Good, but let's make sure it doesn't for long. Go to Matthew 5. The whole point that we've said all along, notice what Jesus does in chapter 5, verse 21. He's giving the Sermon on the Mount. And again, this isn't a sermon about how to live a better life. This is a sermon about how you're the worst. What notice what he says? He says, look, you've heard that it was said to those of old, chapter five, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old that you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Well, that's pretty big. He goes on and says, verse 27, you've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust already committed adultery in his heart. Now, is he saying that anger is the same as murder? No. Is he saying that lust is the same as adultery? No. What does that mean? What does that mean? Here, one of the biggest challenges, we mistake this. We say, well, I've already murdered them in their heart. I'm like, well, I guess you may as well finish the job and go murder them, right? What's the difference? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is the person that commits murder has the exact same heart as you who is angry. The person who commits adultery is the exact same as anyone who lusts. And guess what? Y'all lust and y'all get angry, which means all of us are murderers who haven't been the right opportunity yet. All of us are adulterers who haven't been right the opportunity. And some of us have. Some of us are murderers. Some of us have committed adultery. That's the picture. Let me say this another way. When you watch the show or you hear the news about the worst villainy on planet Earth, we are prone to make them aliens. Those people are beyond the pale. They're aliens. Something's wrong with them. Here's the point. They're just like you. They're of the same nature as you. They have the same heart as you. That's what Jesus is saying. No one, no human being, the worst of the worst has the same heart as you. And it's on display. That's who you are by nature. You lie because you are a liar. You sin because you are a sinner. You are a murderer by nature. That's the picture. And so it's after that, and it's in light of that, in verse 44, when Jesus then says this, You've heard this as verse 43, heard that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So you can be sons of God, sons of your father who's in heaven. What does that mean? Love your enemies? Here's why, because you, you were an enemy. When we come to Christ, the gospel that saves us is the same gospel that saves the worst villainy, the worst of our enemies. And so if our grace is big enough for villains, it's then big enough for us. That's the only grace big enough for us because all of us who came to Christ came to us, came to, came to Christ as his enemies. And so the, when we meet enemies on the street, that's kind of what we're looking at. Guys, I want you to understand here now at this communion table, this verse, love your enemies. This is the verse that converted the son of one of the founders of Hamas. He was converted by this verse and gave his life to Christ. And then we housed him at this church in my parents' boat. Many people in this room housed him at this church and I went around the country and did all places and we're on the news talking about this guy who was part of the biggest terrorist organization who's in the news right now being wiped out, who gave his life to Christ. And the thing that did it was love your enemies. How could, what religion is that? It's amazing to me, guys, I would love to see repentant homosexuals and repentant transgender people and repentant blue-haired lesbian Chicana literature crazy, uh, you know, whatever at this ta communion table with us. I want to see Joe Biden at this communion table with us. I want to see Gavin Newsom, repentant, by the way, at this communion table with us, okay? But I want us to want that. I want to see gang members and prostitutes and not just golden-hearted ones, but annoying ones, stinky people, people that are weird people. Like, I want to see them at this communion table. That's the point of grace. Amen. And that's the whole idea of grace. It's supposed to be big enough for us to want that. And the question is, do we want it? And if we don't, oof. Jesus wanted it. Luke 23 the words, love your enemy, like do this, like the grace that we're talking about because that's who we were or his own words and he lived it out. Luke 23, verse 34, we understand this, but let's look at it. Jesus, as he's being crucified, verse 34 said, Father, 
as his hands are nailed, as his hands are nailed to wood. Jesus' Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do while they're gambling for his clothes. Jesus meant it to love your enemies. Some of those people get saved. Later, we read about Stephen, who does the exact same thing. Go back to Acts and look at chapter 7, verse 54. Remember, Stephen says when they heard these things, they were enraged, the crowd, and they ground their teeth at him. And so this is, a, this is a brave moment for Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And as the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, as rocks are hating him till he died, he cried out with a loud voice, just like Jesus did, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. Now stop for a second. Stephen believed this, and we're told, and Saul approved of his execution. Paul is telling us this. Paul, the one who realized that when Stephen says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, in hindsight realized that was a prayer for him, the enemy. That was a prayer for him, the enemy. That's who writes to us about grace. That's who tells us about how big grace is. The guy who was the enemy holding the coat so people could hit a man with rocks to death, that man prayed for Paul, and Paul, oh my goodness, he's gonna tell us that as well. This is, the, this is what the early church believed. This is what made the church multiply. This is the gospel that multiplies the church. And my friends, we have to understand something about it. We are called to this same gospel, but we miss it. We miss out on it. Last verse of the day, go to Mark chapter three. Jesus has this crazy little quote, and I think it's so fitting. We'll end here. Mark chapter three, verse 20. This crazy little quote. He's talking, people basically took his deeds. They weren't sure what's going on, so they blamed it on Satan. But what he says, he doesn't just say, nah, <laughs> he doesn't say, nah, I want you to think about enemies for a minute. In this statement, what Jesus' response to the accusations, they went home, crowds gathered again, they couldn't see and even eat. His family tries to seize him, they think he's out of his mind. But the scribes who came down from Jerusalem are saying he's possessed by Beelzebul, And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Look at his response. He calls them to them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan's risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand, but it's coming to an end. Okay, that's the first part, but it's the verse 27 I want to focus on. He goes, but no, one, no man, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. What Jesus is describing is what he's actually doing. Look at this again. He's describing what he's doing no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. He says, unless you're stronger first, in other words. And then indeed he can plunder his house. What's happening when he says this? Our view of grace has always been too small, too domesticated. We think it's something orderly, coming in neat lines and leaving easy equations. But Jesus presents us something else. It's a grace that assaults and subverts. It's a grace that binds our efforts to resist no matter who we are or how bad we've been. Grace is a strong man's game, is God's game, and he plays it full out. And the enemy, us, has no chance to resist, only surrender. It was this kind of grace that grabbed Paul, knocked him on his backside, lifted him up, and dragged him into danger and persecution to bring the gospel to you and I. And it's this kind of grace that we're called the wield. If you're a non-believer sitting here right now, I sat where you sat or sit right now, so stop resisting. God knows who you are. He knows the worst that you've been, how bad you've ever been. And his grace is big enough for you. I promise. And if you're a believer, stop domesticating grace. Be an Ananias, be a Barnabas, pray for your enemies. Let your grace be bigger than your prejudices, more messy than your comfort zones, because this is the grace that multiplied the church and it will multiply ours too. This alone is the grace that's called to do that. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you now and we think about these words, as we think about 
the kind of grace you call us to. I pray, first of all, that you would give us courage. Give us courage to accept people immediately who put their faith in you as brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to understand the significance of that act in the Apostle Paul's life. Help us understand how important it is to be like that in our own lives. Father, I know that for many of us, it's the risk of embarrassment, the risk of being wrong. What if I accept someone into the church and then they backslide? What if I start liking Kanye West and he acts like he is now? But Father, you're good and you've called us to trust you and our job isn't to separate the wheats from the tares. That's your job. We know we're supposed to be discerning and this, that, and the other, but on the flip side, we are supposed to rejoice with your work. And I pray that we are not cynical, but we see your work of grace and that we can start to see your work of grace in the lives of people very different than us across all the different aisles from us, that we wouldn't only think about the nice washed people coming to know you, but Father, that we would be bold about your gospel. We would be bold about your brotherhood and sisterhood in the faith. And I pray, Father, for those who don't know you today, that they would understand that you've been working to bring them here, that they would stop resisting, and they would recognize that you brought them here against their wishes. They came for bad reasons in many respects, but you have good reasons. And as you change them, I pray they would recognize your work in this moment and be saved. Father, would you use this sermon beyond my wildest expectations? In Jesus' name, amen.